Morning, everybody. Morning. Thank you, David. Thanks so much. That's a that's a really warm welcome. Nobody spoke about me like that in such a long time. I might <laughs> I might just come here more often. Um, you've probably heard people halfway through their their uh, their speaking saying, "If you forget everything else that I've said, remember this." And uh, but this morning, as I listened to Josh give. Uh, give this announcement about this family. I don't know who this couple are or who this family are, but I'm almost, at, before I've even said anything, I'm like, if you forget everything else that I said, if you forget everything that I said, respond to this. It is the most, it is the most hospitality is one of the most precious, wonderful things. And I, and I know that, that many of us are already actively involved in it, but uh, if you forget everything else that goes on in this place today, I am convinced that hospitality and all of that is the most beautiful expression of the heart and the goodness and the nature of God. But in saying that, I hope you don't forget everything that I want to say this morning. Uh, I, so I lead Grace Community Church with a few friends, with my wife and, and uh, friends' wives. Um, wonderful group of people that we have the opportunity to, to lead and to serve along with. And um, really grateful for it. Grateful for... Uh, Grateful for how I've been brought up. Uh, my my dad, mom and dad started dropping ministries, and so I've just been involved in in ministry and church my my whole life, uh, pretty much. Um, I've been leading the church, helping to lead the church, trying my best over the last six years, um, almost. Uh, but but all, along those six years, I'm notoriously bad at coming up with a title for a sermon, and uh, and so normally I will I'll. I'll I'll preach, and the guys down at the back, the sound guys down at the back, will come to me at the end and say, "Well, for putting this up on our social media platforms, what what's the title? What have you named this week's sermon?" And I I, I immediately begin to panic, I begin to break out in a cold sweat because I have no idea. I'm so bad, so not creative at all in that way. But um, just began to to, to wait upon the Lord. Um, once I avoided the temptation just to go back through my notes and find something that I'd done before uh, and say, God, what is it that you want to say um, to these guys? And David, David is right. Um, some of the things that how he's introduced me are probably a bit of an exaggeration. I'm not as good as he's making me out to be. But he hasn't exaggerated the fact that I love what, what's going on here. Not exaggerating the fact that I am thrilled to be in this in this room and seeing the dream and the vision that God placed within David and Linda come to fruition. And, uh, and to be sitting in this incredible building truly is remarkable. So he hasn't exaggerated that. Uh, and, and I was just waiting upon the Lord, what is it that you want to say to these guys? What is, uh, how can I challenge? How can we, how can we sh- iron sharpen iron this morning? Um, I felt like over and over again in the quiet place, he just, this, this line just kept dropping into my mind, breaking the mould. Breaking the mould. And, and it's a weird experience, because for six years I've tried to come up with a title and then preach a sermon. I've never been able to do it. So this morning, after, last week, getting to the place where I had the title, and now I have to build from that. And, and um, So breaking the mould, that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Breaking the mould. Uh, if you were to take a quick Google search, you'll see many, many different definitions of uh, 
of what breaking the mold means. You'll find its origins, you'll find all sorts of different examples. I love the first two, I think it was the first two that happened to come up in my feed anyway, and the first definition of breaking the mold was putting an end to the restrictive pattern of events. Putting an end to the restrictive pattern of events. The second definition was something along these lines. Do something completely different from what has been done before or what's usually done. Putting an end to the restrictive pattern of events. I couldn't help but think, and I'm going, I'm, I'm going to throw myself right into the deep end here this morning. I, I think often that the, the pattern of our mindset, our, our mind our mindsets, our activities, our patterns that we've got involved in in the life of the church. I'm wanting to suggest to you, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. Have there been restrictive? Have there been mindsets? Have there been activities? Have there been the, the routines and the rituals that we have been consumed by and been involved with and prioritized, but actually have there been restrictive have there been a restrictive pattern to actually to what God wants to do to how he wants his kingdom to break out on earth his heart his dream is that is that Tandragi would look like heaven that the kingdom would come to Tandragi and beyond that it would look just it would look just like heaven and it would look like it now and so I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling through with this. I'm wrestling through this just more than, not, 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 just, not as a church leader, not as someone involved in ministry, but just, just with him. Just as I, as I spend time with him, God, is there, is there restrictive patterns that I have, have been consumed by? Is there restrictive uh, activities that has prevented you from doing what it is that you truly want to do? And, uh, and because I know because I know David, I know that many of you in the room will be serious readers of Scripture. And as I, as I step back from the whole narrative, as I step back from the whole, and I see and I watch the nature and the character of God from Genesis to Revelation, I think we'll see that God is he's unpredictable. God is unpredictable. And he will, he will use the most unlikely people, the most unexpected people in the most unexpected places. And so as we consider, as we consider this, this idea this morning, breaking the mold, I think the very nature and the character of, of God is one who, will, who continuously breaks the mold, who will always seems to do something that is unexpected. It's always been his nature to do something different. It's always been his nature to do something completely unpredictable as I was driving over here this morning I've, I'm, I'm wrestling through with this I very rarely I try as best as possible to avoid coming to a group of people to our own church speaking to them without having first wrestled through it myself as I was driving over here today I was, beginning, I was just asking the, asking the Lord have I become have I become addicted to familiarity I'd love the answer to that to be no, but I'm, God, have I become so addicted to familiarity? Have I, become, have I become so much more comfortable with conformity rather than being set apart? And I love that you've, 
I love that you've started out this morning with First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. A, a holy people, a royal priesthood, to call people from darkness into wonderful light. But if we were to go right back to if we were to go back to First Samuel chapter eight, and uh, if you want to be there, if you want to go there, you can. I just want to point out a couple of verses. <coughs> Highly recommend this, by the way, if you want. Good, a good Bible reading plan. First uh, Samuel chapter eight. So again, I'm, maybe it's not right to do, but I'm assuming that you'll know most of the story up to this point. Moses has died. Joshua has led the people, led the people of God into the promised land. And there is, but then there becomes this period of this just this cycle of judges. There's just this cycle of compromise. They turn to God and then they turn away from him. And God needs to send somebody to deliver. And he delivers and they go fall back into the same old restrictive patterns. The same old places of compromise. We even see it in, in uh, Eli's sons. And we see it in Samuel's sons as well. I just want to read Eli's sons there, if I can. Just uh, mention my family. My, uh, I'm married to Judith and I have four kids. Caleb, Eli, Jada are three birth kids. And then we're in the process of, uh, of adopting little Katie, who we've had from birth and who is now six months, six months old. So uh, six of us living in, in, uh, living in Rich Hill. Eli's sons and, uh, and Samuel's sons, they were, they were ones that more was expected of them. But even then, even they had engaged in such compromise that eventually the people of God, Israel, comes, the, the nation of Israel come to Samuel and say, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. And that language is repeated again if you were to, if you were to, Look your eye down, another few verses. Samuel has this interaction with God, saying, God, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And God says to Samuel, Samuel, it's not you that they're rejecting, it's me that they're rejecting. But he still gives them what they want. He still gives them their king. And verse 19 says, the people refused to listen to Samuel. They said, no, we want a king over us. Even after Samuel has told them that the king who will reign over you will take, he will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take the best of your fields, he will take the best of your servants, he will take the best of your flocks. And the people refuse to listen. No, we want a king because then we shall be like all the other nations. They wanted to be just like all the other nations. I was thinking about, about this the last few days, and anybody watched the film Wonder? Anybody familiar with the film Wonder? It's, the, it's about a wee boy called August Pullman. And uh, it was a film we watched whenever it first came out, and uh, so moved. We were, me and my wife, we, were, we can be teary enough, but we looked along the row of whenever we were there with our kids, and uh, our two oldest boys were crying as well. It was one of those moving films. With, uh, 
Julia Roberts and what's the man? What's the male actor? A prize for anybody who remembers. Just <laughs> um, It's really not important. But there's a moment in that film. There's a moment in that film where uh, he's he's going to school. He's got this facial disfigurement, and uh, and he decides that he wants to enter into mainstream school. And uh, and his sister leans leans over and whispers in his ear, "Why fit in when you were born to stand out?" And. Uh, and the nation of Israel had decided to live the opposite of what, of what August Pullman's sister advised her little brother. See, the nation of Israel was, they were set apart, they were chosen, but with the idea that they would be a light to the other nations. With the idea that they would, that they would proclaim the goodness and the light of God so that they would call people that were in darkness to experience his wonderful light. And so they were to be a light to the other nations. They were to be like God so that they could reveal God to the nations. But they wanted to fit the cultural mold. They wanted to fit the cultural mold and they conformed. And as we watch, as we witness their story, their, their, these patterns are these restrictive patterns that they have um, found themselves in this constant cycle of compromise, this constant cycle of conforming. And so they conformed politically, they conformed economically, they conformed, I think there's times where it, even through entertainment. But we're not to be entertained, we're not to be conformed. Paul reminds us that we are to be transformed. Romans 12, those famous verses, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't be conformed to those restrictive patterns don't be don't be conformed to the cultural mold but be transformed by the renewing of your minds and so as i've said the king the king who is just like all the other nations this this is what you're wanting to conform to this is the mold that you're looking to fit into this is the cultural mold that you're looking to set yourselves in but the type of the type of king that is going to lead you the type of king that you're going to serve is one who will take and take and take and take. And if we were to if we were take, take our Bibles and go right the way through, right the way to Mark chapter 10, you will get a picture of the ultimate king. You'll get a picture of the, of, of the king that Jesus is, the type of king that Jesus is. Jesus reveals a king who gives. That's what the ultimate king does. The ultimate king came to give. He came to serve and not to be served, as Mark 10, I think, verse 45 tells us. It's the, complete, it's the complete opposite. And so I think even here, in this story, we have, we have the benefit. We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of looking at these stories and looking at, these, at, at, at Scripture through the lens of Jesus. And even here, we are being pointed to the ultimate mold breaker. Because as these guys conformed to the cultural mold, Jesus comes and reveals a king who gives. He is one that breaks, breaks the mold. And I, and I want to challenge you this morning. Is there places that you have conformed politically? Conformed economically? Conformed maybe even through 
entertainment. I really don't want, I'm aware of time and I uh, don't want to go off, I'm so tempted to keep going off on tangents, but on Friday I was just reading again Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 where in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple. And as I've just been meditating upon that, and, and, and I've read it so many times, but in a moment on Friday, Friday morning, I thought, in the year that the king died, I saw the king. And so I, I, as I've been thinking through some of this stuff, I've been asking myself, what, what, what king needs to die? What king needs to die? Because it's not until the king, whatever that is, that, that cultural mold, whether it is, and it could be anything, it could be anything. I've just said entertainment, uh, political, economic, but there's, a, there's an array of things. But I think for all of us, it mightn't be those three things mentioned, but there's a king that needs to die. The thing that we have, we have conformed, we've fitted into the patterns that are around us, and there's something that needs to die, and it's when, that, it's when that king dies that you truly see the king the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple. And so what king needs today? Where have you maybe compromised to fit the cultural mold? Jesus breaks the cultural mold but I think as we, wa- we, as we watch him in the, in the, in the gospels as we watch and witness the three years of his public ministry, I think Jesus breaks the molds, the mold of expectation. See, Jesus, I am, I am fascinated more than I've ever been by Jesus. I am, more, I am more captivated and in love with Jesus than I've ever been. And the strange thing about that is, and I'll come back to it in a moment, but the strange thing for me has been, in some ways I feel like I know less than I've ever known. I feel that there's parts of my life that I'm more, there's times when I feel like I'm more uncertain than I've ever been, but I'm more in love with Jesus than I've ever been. I'm more captivated by who he is. And he lived and he loved and he led differently than anyone would have expected. Every, it's almost like every encounter that he had with, with religious people, every encounter that he had with the lowest of the low was outside of what anyone would have expected the Messiah to do what they would have expected the king to do, what they would have expected the Lord, the anointed, the chosen one to do. And it's why they rejected him. It's why they couldn't get him because he broke every mold. He broke every expectation that the people had on him. And because these guys, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the lawyers, the teachers of the law, they, they had been consumed by the, by the Torah, consumed by... They'd give their lives to it and, and I think they would have, whenever the Messiah came, whenever the, the one that they were waiting for, whenever they expected one, uh, the one that they had longed for would come, I think these religious leaders would have expected his approval. They would have thought, they thought that, it was, that it was about upholding the law even at the expense of mercy and justice. And Jesus calls them out so often. You've thought it was, and, and Matthew 23 is one of the most challenging chapters to read where Jesus really goes after them. You've made it about upholding the law 
at the expense of people entering the kingdom. You've made it about you've made it about your offerings and what you bring, but you've neglected the most important matters. You've neglected justice and mercy. You've neglected kindness and love. And again, I'm I'm wanting to challenge you. Do you know anybody like that? And and I, and I had a moment. I had a moment during the week, which really, which really, which really, which really annoyed me. Actually, as I, as I wrote that down, do you know anybody like that? I realised that I didn't have to look too far. I was in the room, in the dining room at the kitchen table on my own, and realised that I didn't even have to look outside of the room to find someone that was like that. Because you see, I, as I've said right at the beginning, I grew up. Grew up in church my whole life, just being a part of it. A couple of years, uh, I rebelled. And, but I've always been around this environment. And it's only been the last few years that I've realized, do you know what? I, I've spent so much of my Christian experience thinking that his pleasure in me was based on believing all the right things. That his pleasure in me was having, having every I dotted and every T crossed. And I love the word and I, and I, love, I love theology, I love to read all of that st- sort of stuff. But actually I come to realize that his pleasure in me was based on me believing all the right thing, all the right things. I felt like it was even, it, was a, it stunted my relationship with him as I began to reflect on that. But actually more than that, it, it, it affected my relationship with other people. So people that thought differently than me, people that behaved differently than me, People that interpreted different parts of the Bible different, differently than me. I, I, I almost subconsciously had become judge and jury. I, I had become the, 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 the critique of what everybody else thought and what everybody, how everybody else behaves and how every other denomination is seeing things differently from the way I've seen it. And so the challenge, the challenge for me was actually I was doing what Jesus was trying to call the Pharisees out on. I'm upholding the law. I'm upholding believing all of the right things at the expense of grace and the expense of mercy, at the expense of kindness. And so the thing, the thing that I've realized as I've just wrestled through some of this stuff with him is that inevitably whenever I become this critique of how others think and how others look and how others behave, inevitably faith becomes more about the what than the who. And that's been transforming for me. That my faith and my journey with him has become more, more now increasingly about the who than the what. And when I, whenever, I be, whenever I look to the who, whenever I concentrate on the who, who is, who is Jesus? The, the what's, I think, sort of begin to fall into place. The what's, the, 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 the differences, the disagreements begin to work themselves out. I think that if you want to go to John chapter 2, let me just read this story. What time did I start at? I've just become aware it's a sign of how comfortable I am. I've I've went off on about four tangents already. Please forgive me. Um, Um... John chapter 2, let me, let me read this, this story, the first, 
sign. John uses that language throughout his gospel. It's the first sign, the first miracle that Jesus performs. On the third day, John chapter 2 verse 1, on the third day a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. I love the response of Mary. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Take note of this verse. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the, this, the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. I felt during the week that I read verse 6 for the first time. And that's why I love that's why I love the word. That's why I love it because I, I don't know how many times I've read through John chapter two and to still years later to read through it again and find that find discover something that I've never seen before. And maybe you've seen it many times, but just humour me for a moment. John chapter two, verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. I think there's something hugely significant and I, I'm, I'm almost convinced that Jesus is incredibly intentional about what he is doing here because he continues to do it throughout the rest of his ministry. See, I, I think that I've already said that Jesus, following him, we, we, we need to break the cultural mold. I think for some of us, we need to break the molds of expectation. And I think, and maybe... For our nation, as much as anything, there needs to be the religious mold. There needs to be a breaking of the religious mold. And I think Jesus did that in his first, his first sign, his first miracle. And he continued to do it throughout the rest of his ministry. See, I, Jesus, could have got, Jesus could have got them to take the wine jars that had run out. You've got to have got them to take the jars that had been filled with wine. They would now run out. And I've got the servants, go and take the wine jars that have been used for the wine and fill them with water. But Jesus tells them to go and take the ceremonial, the, the, the jars that were used for ceremonial washing. And I am so struck by what Jesus was doing in that moment. Because I think that Jesus was turning the, uh, an idol, an idol of personal purification into, uh, into something of relational celebration. And I, and I think that's what Jesus does throughout the rest of his ministry. And I think it's even why when we get to, to the end of Revelation, we're seen as the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, he's coming to remove those icons. He's come to remove those idols of, of personal purification to bring about relational celebration. 
And I think in that moment, he's, he's, there's a shift from legalism to life. And there's a shift from religion to relationship. And again, that's maybe language that you're familiar with. But I, but I think for me, there's something hugely significant and hugely intentional about what Jesus did on his first miracle. And um, and I don't know whether, I, I know how comfortable I am to say this, but I almost had this moment again as I was driving, making my way over here, that Jesus, Jesus thinks that we need more wine than more religion. And so I'm not, I'm, I'm not even getting, wanting to get into a discussion. I'm not, not a, a discussion around alcohol, but there's something about the celebration. There's something about the... He's, he's after that. And he thinks that we need more of that than more religion. And so just for the sake of, just for the sake of reference, I should have mentioned that Mark, Mark chapter 7 tells us, about, tells us about how these ceremonial jars were used. Chapter 7, verse, verse 4, verse 3. The Pharisees... Do not, Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And so when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions. And so they'd have used it for the washing of cups, for pitchers and for kettles. And so I think Jesus is doing something remarkable here. There is a shift from this, this, this religious idol that has been created and he turns it into something completely different and again I wonder is there things in your life is there things in my life I'm, I'm telling you I'm wrestling through with this like you wouldn't believe God is there, there is there a religious idol that I have that I have that I have placed in front of relational celebration is there a form of legalism that I have created in my life that prevents me experiencing life but offering life and I think that Jesus continued. We could go on to, into, the, into, his, into his miracles, into healing on the Sabbath, into all of that. But I think Jesus was, was intentionally trying to shift a mindset. He was trying to break the religious mold. He was trying to break the mold of tradition. And I, and I think Stephen got that. Stephen in Acts chapter 7. I think Stephen is trying to show these people. Jesus has Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. They still haven't yet made their way out of Jerusalem. And we get to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. And we don't have a big pile of information around Stephen. We don't, we don't, we're not, he's not part of our, our, our reading for very long. But I'm fascinated by him. In Acts chapter 7, I think Stephen is trying to, to show anybody who's listening. He's trying to remind and reveal to the, these, the Sanhedrin, to, the, to this room full of religious people, that there actually is no mold. And so whenever you read through Acts chapter 7, it's a pretty lengthy chapter. I would encourage you to read it. But you read through it and you get to the very end, and I have almost found myself asking why do they get so angry I have never met somebody I've met people that are angry but I've never met them that they were that cross that their teeth began to gnash they were that furious that they couldn't help but launch themselves to take Stephen's life and I think as I read through Acts chapter 7 
and Stephen shows that there is no mould and actually he is beginning to break their moulds of expectation, their moulds of tradition, that can get an ugly response. Breaking the mould can get an ugly response. And I feel like we need to acknowledge that. See, they were convinced that God was going to use a person that fits the mould. And again, as I read through Acts chapter 7, I get to... I'm trying to work out why, why, why is... What has Stephen said that is so offensive? What has Stephen said that has got their backs up? And I remember reading through, through chapter 7 and getting to verse 21 and it's speaking of Moses. He was no ordinary child and when he was placed outside. And, and, and religion and religious people have, a, have an idea, have a, a certain mold that they think that God will use. There's a certain person that God will use. That God was going to use a person that fits the mould, a certain mould. But when we get to Moses, Moses came from the outside. Even I think even if we were to delve a wee bit into the story of Abraham, I think we'd even see that really Abraham came from outside. And they thought that it was going to be in a, from a particular place. They thought that the place that God would come, the place that God would use, would have to fit a certain mould. And so is it going to be a particular person? Stephen, I think, is showing there's no mould. God can use anyone he wants. They thought it was going to be in a particular place, but actually when Moses, when Moses encountered the burning bush and he drew near, and the words came, take off your sandals because the place that you're standing is holy ground. And here we, we get, I think that Stephen again is being intentional. I think he's being intentional in the same way that so often Jesus was. And he's showing that the, the holy ground was actually outside of the holy land. See, we think that it's going to be in a particular place. But Stephen's showing that there is, there's going to be no particular person there's going to be no mould to fit the person that God's going to use. There's going to be no mould to fit the place that God wants to show up. And we could keep going through Acts chapter 7. Because when we, get to, when we get towards the end, we could talk some stuff around Joseph. We could talk a wee bit more about, about Moses. But for the sake of time, we get, to, we, get to, we get to David. We're introduced to David. And Stephen says in verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them. When they took it from the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place. He asked, it was David's idea, he asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. See, this is this. Whenever you begin to get under the surface, whenever you begin to get into the the mindset of the religious people, what Stephen is saying is begins to be confrontational. He is saying that the temple was never essential. See, I think I think I think Stephen is showing that the God and His goodness and His kindness He accommodated David's. 
desire to have a temple built for him. That's not where he dwells. In fact, he dwells outside of the temple. See, I think God was happy with the tabernacle because the the tabernacle was simple and more than anything, the tabernacle was mobile. And that's what God wanted. He wanted to go where his people were. He wanted to, he wanted to, be, that, he wanted to be that cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night. That's, that's what he wanted to do. And so Stephen comes and says the temple was never essential because that's not where he dwells. He dwells outside of that. And so he dwells outside of the particular person. He dwells outside of the particular place. And he even wants longs to dwell outside of, outside of, the, outside of the temple. Because God uses and he calls those outside of their interpretation of Torah. He calls and uses those outside of the temple, outside of the land, and even outside of their tradition. And then it's like, I, I know if many of you were watching the boxing last night, but the, at the end of this, it's like, the, it's, like the, it's like the uppercut. It's like the car front and dig in the gut. Whenever he says, you stiff-necked people, you have always resisted. And you've, you've resisted You've resisted because you thought that it was going to fit a certain mold. You'd set, you'd set it in your head. You'd had the mindset that it was going to be a person that fitted the mold that you had created. It was going to be in a place that you thought it would come from. And at the end, he says, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Because you've rejected the new thing that I want to do. You've rejected the new, the new one that I've, that I've wanted to choose. And without, well, maybe in their ignorance, they've... They, they, didn't, they weren't aware of it, but that it was a resisting of the Holy Spirit. It was a rejection of the new thing that he wanted to do, and it was a rejection of the ones that he wanted to use. And I tell you, whenever I get to the end of that chapter, I can assure you that I want to wrestle through that more than I've ever wrestled through it. Because God, I do not want to resist you. I do not want to reject you because of, because of the, the mindset that I have that I've been conformed to. I don't want to miss your new thing because I thought it wouldn't come from that place. Because it couldn't come from that person. It couldn't be her. It couldn't be him. I'm like, God, please, please don't let me miss what you're wanting to do. I don't want to resist. I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss because I'm standing as some sort of judge and jury and how it should happen and how it's going to happen. And I think, I think I, I, re, I flick through a few more chapters and I feel like this is the word that God has been challenging me personally, but the more I've wrestled through with it, I think it's a, it's a word for many of us. It's a word in some ways for, for the church. I'm almost reluctant to say that. I don't want to stand here in some sort of conceited way and think that I have some sort of revelation that all of the church in our nation needs to hear, but I think there's some stuff that we want to be challenged with. See, Acts chapter 10 tells us about Peter. Tells us about the vision that he had. Tells us that he fell into a trance and heaven opened and a sheet fell down. A sheet fell down and it contained all kinds of four-footed animals and the voice said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. This was outside of his tradition. This was outside of his, of his cultural mold. It was outside of his culture, or was that outside of his expectations, outside of his religious understanding. And that's why he rejected and that's why he resisted, but thank God eventually 
thank God eventually that he, he responded. He realized that the mold needed to, to be broken and he allowed it. And so, so I'm, I want to be like Peter. I don't want to, I don't want to, I almost don't want the, <laughs> the heavens to open and something to fall down four times before I realize that God is, is wanting to break the mold that I have created. And more than anything, I've, I've considered this. It, not only do I not want to find myself in a place where I'm resisting that, where I'm avoiding breaking the mold, but I don't want to miss the Cornelius's. Because when we get to Acts chapter 11, God is, to Acts 10 and 11, we get, to, we get to see that God was ready preparing Cornelius. And he needed, he needed someone that was going to think outside of the moulds of expectation. He needed somebody that was going to think outside of the religious traditions. And so he, he, he went after Peter. He got into, he got into, Peter got into a wrestle with this and thank God that he did. Because then we, we have the wonderful story of Cornelius and his family coming to faith. And so he is longing. He is lo I think he's just longing for these Peter and Cornelius moments all over our families and all over Tannergee and beyond. That's what he's longing for. He's longing for the transformation of ourselves for Tannergee and beyond. And what stuns me is that our participation becomes part of the transformation. See, I know me too well. Which is why I'm stunned that he would decide to participate with me. That he has committed himself to, to partnering with us and seeing his kingdom come. See, he wanted Peter. He, he, he wanted Peter to get this because he wanted to participate with Peter and seeing the transformation of Cornelius and beyond. And I think if you go, if you go back to the story that I shared from John chapter 2, Jesus could have, Jesus could have turned to, he could have turned to, he could have had the wine in those ceremonial jars, but he, he entered into participation with the servants. He called the servants, guys, go you and fill the water up and, wa and watch what happens when we participate in this together. It's, it's participation that becomes part of the transformation. And I love that the first miracle that he showed, that he performed, just broke so much of the moulds that had been created. But in that moment as well, he was having his servants participating in the miracle, participating in a bit of heaven coming to earth. And again, we started with First Peter chapter two, verse nine. There's this, there's this verse in Second Peter chapter one, verse four, reminding us of who we are. We are participants of divine nature. Incredible as that is, that is who you are. That is who you are. You're participants of divine nature. And participants of divine nature are mold breakers. It's who we are. And I, and I think to see his kingdom come, to see, to see us no longer resisting and rejecting what he wants to do, there's a few molds that need to be broken, whether it's culturally, whether it's through our expectations, whether it's through religion or through tradition. He is longing for us to participate. And he was longing for, the, he was longing for these religious people to participate too. We can often give religious people a hard time. These guys, have, this, this has been conditioned all along. But Jesus wanted to expose some stuff, but, oh, but still his heart was for them. That's why he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long, I long to gather you. Along that you would come and, and 
come close, let me shelter you, find, find intimacy, find closeness. But they continue to reject and they continue to resist. And uh, trust, that's me, I'm done. Can I pray for you? As uh, participants of divine nature, as agents of reconciliation, as those called to bring those in darkness into his wonderful light because of who you are, a holy people, a royal priesthood. You're his treasured possession. And he's longing that we would live in such a way that would attract people to him. We're never going to do it by conforming. And so God, I just pray that you would stir a boldness and a courage within us to, to break the mold. And God, maybe, maybe for some of us, it's just, a, it's just a personal mindset. Maybe it's just a, a mindset that you just need to shift, that you need to break within us. God, we want to do that. We want to do that wisely. We want to do that sensitively. Thank you that you are sensitive in those moments. Because your heart that we wouldn't miss what you want to do. Because you're longing for us to participate with you. You're longing for us to join in in this kingdom mandate of seeing heaven come to earth. And so we pray that for Tandragi, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it would be done through these guys in this room. It would be done through them actively responding, actively waiting upon you, seeking your face, responding to to you, even if it's a new thing. Even if it's a new thing. We bless your name. We thank you. Bless these guys. Bless their families. Bless all that's going on here. Continue to do this beautiful work that you've started. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.